Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin radio show. Each and every one of you, you heroic men, enduring these frigid days of winter, going to work early every morning, taking care of business, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desires to indulge the body's seductive whisper, Instead, you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built knowing that even in its wrecked ruins, they will live better than in anything they could ever build themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you, beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting the ring, of one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow. You gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women who do all this and have done all this, yes, you are the natural audience for this Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. You are the audience that I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that's a day of privilege. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Yes, that's right. The only show in the entire g- digital universe that reveals how the world really works. And uh, although I had no intention of speaking yet about the Florida school shooting, uh, I'm going to do so. Why did I have no intention of doing so? Because ancient Jewish wisdom informs that it's not a good idea to try for any rational discussion while we are still in mourning, while the dead still lie before us. In other words, you cannot expect any human being torn asunder by grief to listen without anger and resentment to any intellectual conversation about what they have suffered. This last week and a half or so has been a time when parents that have had their children ripped from their arms are speaking out expressing their grief, expressing their anger, and all of that is completely understandable. And all of that needs to have expression. And ordinarily, I would wait for a month 
before speaking on the topic. But the reason I've decided to discuss it in today's show is because policymakers, idea generators, thought instigators, pundits and everybody else are all eagerly talking about what needs to be done. All of them are lionizing the children of that school who are again doing exactly what they should be doing. But what should not be happening is that adults should not be listening to them. We should be caring, we should be hearing them compassionately, but we certainly should not be jumping to policy decisions as everyone seems to be doing. And so, although it is premature, and although it is a time for mourning and grief, not a time for dispassionate analysis, dispassionate analysis is precisely what I plan on delivering. So, I'm going to talk about five main points. Let's start with point number one. Here's point number one. There are over 300 million people in the United States of America. If only one-tenth of one percent of them are really, really crazy, and by the way, from your own day-to-day experience, you know it's higher than one in a thousand. You just walk around the streets of any major city, read your papers, see what's going on, look at the crazy people accosting citizens on the streets. We're talking about really crazy people, and I'm being extremely conservative when I say only one in a thousand people are really, really crazy in America. It seems to me to be higher than that. But even if it's only that, and let's assume that really, really crazy people do only one really, really crazy thing, shall we say, once every 20 years, and you know it's more than that. And a really crazy thing can mean taking their own life, taking someone else's life, doing something really crazy. And so if only once every 20 years, really crazy people do something really crazy, well, do the arithmetic. That would give us one truly crazy event every single week. So in a way, we're way ahead of the statistical game. Now, when I say one really, really crazy event... I'm not speaking about the Las Vegas shooting because I'm not sure that that was just a really, really crazy person. He may have been that, but along with law enforcement people in Vegas who've spoken to me off the record, we don't know the whole story. We've not been told the whole story of the Las Vegas shooting. So I'm, I'm leaving that one out. 
I'm not le- I'm leaving out the San Bernardino shooting. I'm leaving out the Orlando shootings because those were events of Muslim attack on the West. But uh, a really crazy event such as we saw in uh, Florida a week and a half ago, well, that's a really crazy thing. And it goes without saying that it's horrible. It goes without saying that if we could make it go away, we should. If we could ensure that this never happens and that nothing happens of of grievous bodily harm to children in schools anymore, well, we should do that. But we need to act with deliberation. We need to act with caution because there is a sad, sad tendency of public policy to have unfortunate and unintended consequences. Needless to say, with several hundred million weapons in the United States, and who knows how many unknown weapons are in the United States, how many, when when we speak about numbers of weapons, we speak about the ones we know, people who are law-abiding, who register their weapons. But how about everyone else? And how's about something else, which is something that needs to be discussed? And that is that uh, the school shootings, when you think of them, the Massachusetts event, the Denver-Columbine event, this recent event, and several other smaller ones that haven't reached quite the same level of public indignation. In general, it's not hard to see that they've been carried out by very troubled individuals, very troubled individuals. Now, one of the differences between the way Israel and its national airline, LL, conduct security, and the way the rest of us conduct security, is that Israel recognizes that horrible things are done by human beings, not by steel and plastic. It's a very big difference. Our instinctive tendency with the uh, progress of uh, secular liberalism to its current state in our culture is that people are flawless. Everything that goes wrong is a result of some social trend, something that has been caused by society and uh, something inanimate like guns. And so, yes, <coughs> I, I, along with every other Second Amendment believer, am not so wedded to the ownership of my firearms, none of which I have, thank God, ever had to fire in anger, that if I could be persuaded that an overall total ban on guns, such as being attempted in the United Kingdom, for instance, 
that that if that would do the trick if that would solve the problem along with everyone else i'd go with that but i am bothered by many things including the fact that until 1962 and those of you who are regular listeners of the rabbi daniel lappin show well you know how i date 1960, 61, 62, how I date that period. But regardless, up until that period, you know that in, I think it's safe to say, every state in the Union, boys in hunting season used to come to school with their guns and lay them in the corner so that they could go straight out shooting right after school. Many schools even conducted firearm shooting exercises. And yet, in spite of the ready availability of weapons, there were no school shootings back then of of any significance. And so I have trouble accepting the notion that a government action to ban guns will suddenly have this magical effect. After all, government attempts to ban dangerous drugs does not seem to have any enormous impact on the opioid epidemic. And I don't think it'll have any effect whatsoever on the shooting. I think of places like Baltimore and Chicago, which have huge numbers of firearm shootings, and the deaths, the homicides would be even higher were it not for the brilliance and accomplishment of the the, uh, medical responders and the emergency medical staff in the hospitals that save shooting victims at a much higher rate than they did years ago. But with all of that, with all the laws against firearms in the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore, with all the laws against firearms in Illinois and Chicago, it seems to have zero effect on the shooting. So I, for one, would need a great deal more persuasion that a government ban on firearms is the answer. I am even cynical enough about government to believe that government's desire to get rid of citizens legally owning weapons is something that the school shooting in Florida and every other shooting is exploited to achieve. In other words, I don't for one moment believe that the ultimate goal is to make America safer for citizens. I believe the ban on firearms is part of the secular liberal dream. The same reason that as England turned secular liberal, they banned firearms. Before that, many, many English people, I'm not going to say most because I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but uh, it was very common in the years I lived in the United Kingdom to visit a home and see the homeowner's weapons on a rack, and, um, and you didn't have the shootings. I just don't believe that all of this is virtuous. I believe that uh, deep in the heart of the secular liberal, in his enormous and childlike faith, not in the big G of God, but in the little G of government, it is just a burr under the saddle. It is a splinter under the skin to have citizens owning firearms for the very same reason that the people 
who formulated the Second Amendment were worried. They didn't want government to be fearless. They didn't want people to be powerless at the hands of a potentially tyrannical regime. So uh, that is reason number one. Uh, with 300 th- over 300 million people in America and a growing number of disturbed people for reasons I'll soon come to, well, it's pretty clear that um, things are going to happen. Are they stoppable? Perhaps so, but not by the intuitive and wrong-headed suggestion, oh, we've got to ban guns. That is by no means clear to me. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. I welcome you there because uh, that is where I respond to comments. Uh, That is where you can post a comment. That is where you can communicate with me and where Susan Lappin and I do our very best to respond in a timely and direct manner to the issues that you raise. So visit rabbidaniellappin.com. Also, please make sure you are receiving our weekly mailings. You can do that by simply uh, putting your email address on the list, and that way we can stay in touch and be connected with one another. And um, you can also take a look at uh, a very important one-hour audio program that is available at a special discount for listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, immediate digital download of Boost Your Income, Spiritual Strategies for Success. And um, as you know, I'm a very big believer in the words of Samuel Johnson that seldom is a citizen more innocently employed. Never is a citizen doing anything more innocently than when he is trying to improve his own financial condition. So uh, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com and read about Boost Your Income. Back with you in just a moment. Welcome back. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And we're on to my second concern, my second take on the school shooting in Florida. Beginning in the 1960s, again, again, it's the 1960s, and continuing on through the 70s and into the 80s, we watched the deliberate deinstitutionalization of mental patients. They are now on the street. I think you will agree. I mean, if, if you live in, in, in anywhere in any large American city, because yes, there is a uh, congregation of the so-called homeless um, in the cities of America rather than in the small towns and rural areas. Uh, for very simple and obvious reasons, I'm sure you got that figured out. But if you live in in any uh, major-sized city in America, there isn't a mother among you who has not had the decidedly unpleasant experience of trying to shepherd your kids past some ranting, raving homeless person on the street, very often gesticulating threateningly, Uh, perhaps urinating in public. People 
should be safely, people who should be safely cared for in mental hospitals, really do pose real peril to themselves and to others. Um, I think you all know, it's, it's well established, that uh, almost without exception, the so-called homeless are people who are either uh, strung out on drugs or intoxicated, or they are mentally problematic. They are people who have serious mental problems. They should not be on the streets. They certainly should not be normalized by the term homeless, which somehow seems to suggest that, you know, one time, all of a sudden, a family, hard-working family, raising its children, connected to society through its church and through its social organizations, all of a sudden, one day, finds itself on the street. It's not how it really works. Uh, are there the occasional exception? Yes. But among the tens of thousands of people thronging the streets of America, in spite of the fact that in virtually every city, anybody who throws himself on the welfare of the community, of the government, receives the equivalent of between fifty and eighty thousand yes, that you heard me right, fifty and eighty thousand dollars a year for food and shelter and medicine and everything else. Uh, in spite of that, there are people on the street. They don't have to be there. There are countless ways for people to receive goodness from their fellow citizens, and that's not even counting what the private sector will do. I mean, will anybody be turned away from a church or a synagogue? If so, I've never heard of that. But not even counting that, just going to the resources that government makes available. There shouldn't be a single person on the street. But you see, one of the casualties of a secular, liberal, socialistic decline of society is a disparaging of the normal and the healthy in favor of the aberrant. And this is why it is that in spite of only a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the population identifying as homosexual, their rights become paramount. In spite of even a smaller percentage of the population declaring itself to be, quote, transgender, again, their rights are paramount. As the forces of government grow, and as the forces of government increasingly adopt the religion of secular fundamentalism, the normal, the wholesome, and the healthy are forced to the back of the bus. That's how it works. And you might ask, why were the mentally unstable people taken away from the care they needed, both for their own protection and the protection of normal, wholesome, healthy, hardworking society? That began in the 60s as well, part of the same idea. Everybody's the same. And just because somebody wants to sleep in the street, that's no reason for anyone else to judge them. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking this decision 
was made on a financial basis. Oh, the, uh, the public health system can't accommodate them. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think it's perfectly obvious that the public health system is carrying a far, far higher burden today than it was when they started deinstitutionalizing mental patients. People who should be cared for in a mental institution. People who were going to do bizarre and crazy things out on the street, not in their interests and certainly not in the interests of civilized society. But uh, that was done, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, it, re- it reached the point where essentially nobody, no, regardless of how bizarre the behavior, could be contained against their own will. And, uh, and so there we have uh, the second problem. And so whereas the uh, parents, the people who adopted this individual from the Florida, who the perpetrator of the Florida killings, whereas a while back, prior to 1960, they would have had a resource. They would have been able to have had him contained. They would have been able to have him forced to accept some form of restriction on his liberties because of the threat he posed to others. And there's been no secret about that. Everybody knows Even the FBI is said to have known that he posed a threat. But today, parents in that situation, parents of a big, strapping 19-year-old, have no resources. They cannot bring government into the picture. Law enforcement, reluctant to do anything until a crime has been committed. But once upon a time, they could have brought that child to a, a mental facility, and that child could have been checked out mentally and, and there would have been ample reason to restrain him for his own good. He would have been on medication, he would have been taken care of, and he would not have hurt anyone else. You want to talk about solutions? I believe that matter ought to be discussed with at least the same urgency with which gun control is being so vehemently advocated as we speak. No, it's not so simple. But there is another problem having to do with the mentally unstable. And nobody really knows how many of them there are. But based on the uh, purported numbers of homeless, and I don't have numbers in which I have full confidence, but it's in the tens of thousands, Without doubt, the overwhelming majority of those people would be better off in a mental care facility, and certainly civilized society would undoubtedly be better off. It is a real tragedy that there are parents who are struggling to deal with a grown boy who is out of control, who is without question undergoing serious mental instability problems. You know, you can't force an 18 or 19 or 17-year-old who's as big as you are, you can't force him to take medication. And there's nothing such a parent can do. But not that long ago, 
he could pop that child into the car and drive through the gates of a of an established properly regulated healthy mental institution environment is it lovely is it wonderful no but it is safe and it is humane and compassionate but because of the twisted sick and evil pathology of secular liberalism we no longer do that in a way we are reaping what we sowed. I'm going to go on to the third point, which is a sad but true reality about the mentally unstable. I want to tell you about that in just a moment. Meanwhile, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and I ask you to visit there, please, Number one, you're able to take advantage of the Boost Your Income audio program, which you can download for uh, a negligible price. I think it's about 5 or $6. And uh, literally, the effect this can have on your earning power, whether you are an entrepreneur or an employee, or maybe you're unemployed and looking for a job, then you really need this. But the effect this will have on your earning power makes five or six dollars appear laughably trivial. So take a look at that, read more about it at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, you might also uh, want to send a question. We Once a week uh, we select one of the questions from the Ask the Rabbi section of our website and we respond. You can also read those answers on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. We get fantastically interesting questions, and we select the most irresistibly fascinating ones of all, and those are the ones that we choose to answer. So head over to rabbidaniellappin.com while we get ready for the next segment of today's Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, feel privileged to be able to spend this time together with you each week. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do just that. And we move on to my third point with respect to the tragic shooting in Florida a week and a half from uh, ago from the time of this recording. And... Um, I want to speak again about the tens of thousands of people on the streets of America, in the homes of families that are beside themselves, not knowing how to deal with them, the tens of thousands of people who are mentally unstable. And if it is indeed one-tenth of one percent of the population if that is what we're talking about, then we're talking about perhaps 300,000 people in America, some of them on the streets, some of them with families who are doing their utmost to care for them, but in so doing are making it almost impossible for them to raise their other children properly because they have no recourse. There is no way to deal with this short of law enforcement. How strange that we fell for that. 
and how strange that even now there is not a huge outcry on the part of our population saying, bring back proper mental health programming. To simply include it in Obamacare was just an invitation for people to indulge themselves with expensive therapy, the talking cure, I call it, except the word cures in in uh, quotation marks because talking about yourself and the problems that your parents imposed on you these are not activities that bring about any kind of a cure but uh, you hard-working taxpayers of America be happy that you are paying for large numbers of your fellow citizens to indulge themselves in this kind of treatment were that that money could rather go towards proper institutions that can take care of the dangerously mentally incompetent. But here's something else that we have to understand about people who are mentally unstable. And look, it is very, very difficult to fully relate to what I'm about to say. I'll tell you another example of something like this. Look, uh, I am as committed to self-defense as could be. For me, I must tell you, my 911 is not on my phone. It's in a safe and secure place in my home. And it has the numbers 357 on it. That's what I regard as my first recourse in the worst-case scenario. I really do believe in self-defense. Nonetheless, I have to tell you that I react with impatient indignation when I find that um, what happened, when I find that young people and I say young because it usually is, but it's not necessary. Certainly young-minded people speak about the uh, German final solution, the German liquidation of European Jews. And um, there, uh, there is a new book out. Actually, it'll be out uh, in a few weeks from the time I'm making this podcast. And it has to do with the fact that uh, the Eastern Front the Nazi assault against Germany named Barbarossa, the unexpected attack that violated the von Ribbentrop agreement that Germany had with Russia, uh, when Hitler all of a sudden invaded Germany in the summer of uh, 1941, he uh, immediately uh, succeeded. The Nazi war machine made these huge inroads on what was possibly the uh, the largest front in the history of modern warfare. I think it stretched about 2,000 miles north-south as Nazi forces pushed into the, into Russia and the Soviet Union. And uh, it, uh, it looked as if it was going to be yet one more victory. Because, you know, don't forget, uh, we're talking about 1941. 1940 was the, the Battle of Britain where England, just by the skin of its teeth, managed to hold off a German invasion of uh, Great Britain. Um, Dunkirk was the beginning of 1940. 
by the way, uh, we at some point we have to talk about that movie that's out about Dunkirk. But um, for now, here we are, 1941. Uh, foreign news correspondents are being told by the Germans that uh, Russia is about to fall because, sure enough, they were advancing on Moscow. Uh, the, the, the Germans had reached the peak of their military effectiveness at this point. And uh, the Russians had been utterly shocked and surprised. This was totally unexpected by Stalin. And um, they were, I mean, if they took Moscow, that was going to be the end. And uh, the Russians rallied themselves and at incredible loss. Um, I think about 300,000 Russians were captured by the Germans at this phase of the battle. Um, the majority of those never came home again. They were, they were in total violation of any conventions on prisoners of war. They were killed. And um, but they the Russians held the Germans off. So Hitler decided uh, we've got to destroy the uh, industrial capacity of the Russians. So he turned to Stalingrad. And uh, one of the great weaknesses of, of the Germans, and I've spoken about this on the show before, uh, is the dictatorial process. It's really a bad way to operate a war. Uh, on the other hand, uh, democracy is also not a really good way to conduct a war. However, uh, the the problem was that there was disagreement between Hitler and his generals, particularly those in the field. Bottom line, they uh, went for Stalingrad. Bottom line, uh, enormous German unpreparedness. Um, they were not prepared for the weather. They were not prepared for the resolve and uh, and ferocity of the Russian counterattack and defense. Uh, they were not prepared for the long lines, the long supply lines. It began to be enormously difficult to supply all the material from ammunition, oil, uh, food, clothing, all the way to where the Germans were at the front, deep in Russian territory. Uh, it turned out to be problematic. Stalingrad turned out to be a massive defeat. Again, huge losses on the Russian side, but also huge losses on the German side. It was the first defeat the Germans had endured in World War II. And uh, and things are, are really, really bad. And we're now looking at the beginning of 1942. Uh, the huge battle for Stalingrad is going to be a few months down the road. And Germany is now literally fighting for its life. Why do I tell you all this? Because at exactly the same time, you've got uh, the roundup proceeding of Polish Jewry. Millions of Jews in Poland, it was like the center of the world's Jewish population, as Israel and America are the centers of uh, the world popular Jewish population today. In those days, it was Poland. Uh, that's where it was. And uh, Hitler had very large numbers of um, uh, SS people working on the uh, on on the rounding up and and destruction and uh, and genocidal uh, wiping out of of the Jews of Poland. Um, many of many of my relatives uh, were among the millions that perished. But here's my point. Uh, Hitler is fighting for his life on the Eastern Front. Nobody expected anything but a rapid victory over Russia. In the same way, they'd come to believe that Hitler was an infallible Führer. He took him through Belgium and Holland and uh, the, their attack on Poland in the first place at the beginning of the war at the end of 1939. 
um, the uh, the uh, basically the removal of the British expeditionary force, defeating they defeated France. I mean, everybody thought Hitler was absolutely uh, godlike. He he could make no mistakes, and so this was a really bad thing that was happening. Not only was the German advance in Russia slowed down, but it looked as if they were experiencing a massive defeat that could imperil. Uh, the mythology surrounding the Führer. So this was like serious, serious stuff. And not surprisingly, the German generals dealing with the ferocious Russians, fighting for their very lives, dealing with the Russian winter, which had, of course, defeated Napoleon in 1812. And uh, and finding all this, these generals turned to Hitler and said, look, uh, you have um, tens of thousands of well-fed well-rested SS men rounding up Jews in Poland and uh, taking them off to the concentration camps. Right now, we need those guys, 10,000 healthy, strong, rested troops, highly trained troops could make all the difference on the front. And uh, Hitler had a, a conniption. He went nuts when this message came, and he screamed at them saying, you don't understand what this war is all about. In other words, Hitler understood what uh, that this was really very much about the Jews. It's illogical, it's irrational. You have to uh, listen to a lot more of the resources I've prepared if you're interested in delving into that area. But bottom line, the destruction of Judaism and then after that Christianity was a centerpiece of Hitler's war. And the idea that he would slow down the extermination of the Jewish people in order to help the troops on the Eastern Front was ridiculous. He wasn't having any of it, and uh, he sent them packing. However, as things deteriorated there, he did relent, and uh, he started releasing some of the men who had been engaged in the extermination of Jews in Poland, and he started releasing uh, quite a lot of the trains and rolling stock and locomotives that had been used to, and you know, think about it, you're talking about a few million Jews have to be moved from their homes all around Poland to the central extermination camps. You're talking about a lot of trains, a lot of material, a lot of resources. He started releasing some of that uh, to salvage the situation in uh, on the Russian front. That left him with a, a shortage of people who would take care of the extermination of the Jews. And so what did he do? He started rounding up middle-aged men, men who were not up to the physical standards of the Wehrmacht, men who could not be enlisted, although later on in the war they were. But at this point, uh, above a certain age, they were not enlisted. And they started creating a few uh, what they called police battalions, And uh, a book that's coming out at the end of uh, February 2018 is a uh, book called Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. I'll tell you more about the book in due course, Uh, but it's a rather remarkable book because it tells the story of hundreds of very ordinary Germans, right? Plumbers, carpenters, bookkeepers, street cleaners, every every kind of, of German man, middle-aged, gets brought in to the process of uh, rounding up and destroying Jews in Poland. How do you get ordinary Germans, 
non-ideological Germans, Germans who just want to live their lives, right? Every country has people like that. You've got your fervent Nazi devotees, but the bulk of the people just wanted to live. You round them up and you can convert these ordinary middle-aged men into brutal, ruthless, consciousness killers. It's a remarkable thing. And uh, just to give you a little bit of an idea of the things he talks about in the book, he explains how certain instructions went out. Um, One of them was that these men must be entertained with music and entertainment every night to wipe out of their memories what they saw during the day. Every morning has to start with a lecture about how the Jews are threatening Germany, how the Jews have hurt Germany. And uh, even so, they found that uh, there were a certain number of these men who, who, who uh, launched into their mission with gusto and quickly reached the point of being able to uh, literally look at a mother with her children and put a bullet through everyone's heads. And then at the other end, you had a group of people who did everything they could to avoid participating. They just couldn't bring themselves uh, to to that degree of cruelty. And then uh, you, the bulk of people in the middle were not happy and enthusiastic, but neither, neither were they willing to uh, disrupt or neither were they willing to go against the peer pressure of, um, of what the battalion was being asked to do. Anyways, um, I tell you all of this because it's interesting that uh, this is how aggressive uh, how aggressively Germany is pursuing its primary mission of exterminating Judaism. Um, At the beginning of 1942, while Germany is running up against this frightfully unexpected challenge of Russia, uh, about 80% of Polish Jews were still alive beginning in 1942, although Poland was invaded at the end of 39. Uh, But it was just ramping up to full speed, the extermination. By the end of 42, early 43, within a year, they'd pretty much wiped it out. There were about 85 to 90 percent of the Polish Jewish population had been murdered. I mean, do you know how hard it is to murder a few million people? I mean, it's not that easy. It's a logistical challenge. But uh, that's how dedicated and devoted they were. I tell you all of this because I want you to understand that when I hear people say, well, if they would have come for me, I wouldn't have gone without a fight. I'd have taken a few of them with me. You don't understand. You do not understand the reality. Um, you know, it's a little bit like uh, the the poor passengers on those planes on 9-11 uh, they, you know, why did only one plane actually do something? Well, because they knew what was happening. But people say, well, why didn't the passengers do something on the other planes? Well, they probably didn't do anything. And the reason is very simple, which is that unless you are somebody who's had extensive military training, unless you have encountered and dealt with violence on a daily level, The sight of a man suddenly slitting the throat of a stewardess paralyzes you. I don't care how courageous we are. I don't care how patriotic or committed we are. The fact is we're not used to that level of violence. And so it is when, and and, you know, this stuff is, 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 is difficult to absorb. But for people who want to, it's out there. When the, the door of your home bursts open, and uh, half a dozen heavily armed German soldiers burst into your home, 
and start beating up your family, your 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 parents, your brothers, your children, whatever it is, and you <laughs> you know to say oh, I wouldn't have gone without it, and then they round them up and they take them to a central place. You see, you've got to understand. Most of us live in hope. And at that point, it wasn't clear that everybody was going to be murdered. The part of the rumor and part of the story that the Germans brilliantly promulgated was people are being taken to work camps. And at this point, are you really going to stand up to six German armed soldiers who have already probably shot somebody in your house anyway? They've got dogs. And now you're going to stand up to them facing certain death Remember that gun control had already been established. Citizens had had their guns confiscated earlier than this. And uh, to stand up to this when, if you just played along, you just kept quiet, at worst you're going to be moved to some kind of work camp. It's not as if people knew that this was the end. And then later on they're in the synagogue, or they're rounded up, in many cases they're put in the synagogue, and uh, at that point, they station uh, troops around the synagogue. They light it on fire. They throw in hand grenades and shoot anybody who comes out. And people perish in the, in the synagogue. Others are left there for days after days after days. And um, no food, no toilet facilities, nothing. And then when their spirits are broken, they're loaded on a train for a, a horrible train ride uh, to Auschwitz. So there isn't any point at which I believe you or I would actually have acted. And that's why uh, I say that, you know, before we make judgments about these kinds of things, we really need to realize that we cannot relate to those abnormal conditions. In a, uh, in a, in a sad and strange sort of way, the affluence and tranquility that we have achieved in United States of America and in other parts of Western civilization, those levels of tranquility and prosperity and affluence and comfort um, ill prepare us to confront tyranny on a, an unanticipated level. So uh, I, I, I tell you all of this because I want you to understand that it's very difficult to put ourselves in the minds of other people in different times, in different circumstances. As soon as we come back, I want to tell you about trying to put ourselves in the minds of the mentally unstable. It is hard for a normal, healthy person to understand what goes on in a disturbed human mind. I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment. Meanwhile, the website, of course, is rabbidaniellappin.com. You know that. And uh, uh, take a look at a uh, wonderful audio resource. It's an hour training program called Boost Your Income. And it comprises three spiritual strategies for financial success. Uh, something I think that everybody should uh, be aware of, everybody should know about. So head over to rabbidaniellappin.com. Make sure you're also on the mailing list for Thought Tools and Ask the Rabbi mailings and Susan's Musings mailings. Whichever ones you want, you probably want all three in my opinion. And um, that way we are able to stay in touch. Uh, rabbidaniellappin.com and I, your rabbi, will be back with you in just a moment. Hello, all you happy warriors, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I, I told you about all that World War II stuff because I wanted to try and convey how 
ill-equipped we all are, blessed as we are with relatively tranquil lives, how ill-equipped we are to appreciate abnormality, how ill-equipped we are to even understand the incredible shock to the human system that abnormality poses. This is one of the reasons that, uh, uh, you know, God forbid, after a car crash, you see people wandering around in a dazed state. And when they're examined by EMT people, they're fine. Nothing, Nothing physical has happened to them, but they're still not functioning. Why? Because in just a, a second or two, in, in a brief horrifying moment, normal driving, you know, where, where you take it for granted, right? Uh, cars on the cross street stop on a red, you go through on a green. Driving is safe, isn't it? And yet something horrible happens. And even when people come out of it physically intact, they are completely dazed because we are operating in shock at that point and the system is not capable of uh, fully comprehending and coping what exactly is going on. And so uh, an example of that, as I say, is people who um, years and years after the event say, well, I would have done differently. I heard somebody a a few months ago was at a law enforcement gathering with a few uh, friends who were going to give me an unofficial briefing uh, of some law enforcement issues. And uh, and they were talking about home invasions where people are there. And, uh, and you know, somebody said, well, I don't understand. I mean, uh, surely that person, it turned out they had a firearm they, for self-defense. Why didn't they do something about it? And, and the answer is that when you suddenly confront three threatening strangers with menacing faces carrying knives or guns, Uh, you are instantly shifted into a state of shock where your normal mental processes don't work exactly the way they do normally. And so we have to understand that. And and so in in this case, what I was talking about is what happens when, when somebody is, heaven forbid, inflicted with a serious mental problem. Um, obviously, such as this individual, a 19-year-old who shot up the school in Florida and murdered 17 innocent people, uh, what's going on in his head is very difficult for us to understand. But uh, one thing I do know is that he shouldn't have been on the street. One thing I do know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that if there was a resource available his parents, well, it was his widowed mother at that point, but while his adopted father was still alive, I'm sure that they would have been grateful to take him in because that's where he should have been. By the way, for those of you who may want more information on this, um, a book was written 25 years ago called Madness on Madness in the Streets. Madness in or on Madness in the Streets, I think. Um, and it's about how psychiatry and the legal system abandoned the mentally ill. And uh, it talks a, li- a little bit about what I was describing, that uh, we changed from a country that recognized that there is such a thing as mentally unstable, mentally incapable, and realizing that in order to protect normality, we have to do something about helping those people, uh, even if it means separating them from society, uh, in the same way uh, that under the the process 
of the gradual progressive thinking that took a hold of the country in the early 60s and progressed through the 70s and 80s uh, with more progressivism, uh, it eventually got to the point where those people were, uh, you know, was the whole the whole process of dealing with mental illness, uh, the thinking on it changed dramatically, and the feeling was, hey, everyone is the same, there's no difference, they just look at things differently from the way you do, and that's no reason to uh, stop them doing what they want to do. You want to sleep in a hotel, they want to sleep on the streets, right? Who's, who's to say that their approach is, is better than yours? You prefer relieving yourself in a bathroom, they prefer relieving themselves in a doorway, Uh Who's to say which one is is better? That's where we are in the culture right now. And uh, I know it's become something of a trite cliche to say ideas have consequences, but they really do. And so uh, we we have to understand um, something very specific. Now, this is my third point about the Florida shooting. People who are mentally unstable are immensely susceptible to suggestion. Okay, this is a really important point. And again, you know, you and I say, oh, come on, you know, just because I read uh, of somebody doing a shooting, I'm not going to go do the same. Yes, of course you're not, and I'm not either. But uh, heaven help us, people whose brains and heads on and souls, I might say, are not working normally are very suggestible. That's the technical term for it. And uh, and this is one of the reasons we have copycat events, right, where these things tend to be clustered because as the – and again, with a, with a society that is immensely news-connected and media-connected, television, radio, newspapers, internet – uh, everybody knows about everything that happens in the country. And people who are mentally unstable are very suggestible. So, again, hard for you and I to relate to this, but it, it's a reality nonetheless. And, um, and so another peril of having, at a guess, at least 300,000 Americans who are seriously impaired mentally well yes suggestibility is 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 one of the things that makes them so very dangerous uh, the fourth point all of these points i've obviously i've i've thought about a great deal i've uh, applied principles of ancient jewish wisdom i have uh, extracted principles and uh, i do not say them lightly particularly so soon after the tragedy yes the fourth uh, principle or the fourth um, area in which i've um, studied this 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 tragedy um is uh, look I, I i can't find a, a a more gentle way of putting this the sanctity of life as a theme in American life, has been eroding for 50 years. The sanctity of life is, it's, it's one of the uh, thematic elements that has, for, for hundreds of years, has unified American civilization. But since the 60s, it has been eroding. You cannot take 
public policy decisions. You cannot culturally impose ways of thinking that reduce the sanctity of life and not expect them to have a consequence in the minds of men. Look, abortion is something that came about in the early 70s, began to be treated not as something awful that sometimes is done and people just do what they have to do, but we don't celebrate it. It changed from that into a culturally prideful activity in certain parts of the left. And little by little, uh, well-mannered people on the right began to learn that they're not allowed to criticize it. Look, there was a time where As a normal part of conversation, we spoke about children being raised uh, without a father as illegitimate children, children who are born into an unwed mother, illegitimate children. And the language stopped. Now, look, I understand why. Why should the child be labeled illegitimate? Why should the child be stigmatized? Child did nothing wrong. Look, I get all of that. But you have to know that there's an unintended consequence. By that stigmatization... And again, by the way, you know, the child himself, you know, didn't really, like, it's not the child didn't have to walk around uh, with a, a sign on him or a giant red eye on his chest that said illegitimate. You understand that. But for society to remove that stigma meant that it was now going to become more acceptable. To the point now where a frighteningly huge percentage of American children being born this year are going to be born to unwed mothers. That's a problem. If you really care about poverty, you don't have to take money away from Americans who earned it to give to Americans who didn't. You don't. To really cure poverty, you just have to end unmarried childbirth. It's all you got to do. But we took certain steps and we popularized, we legitimized the process of having a child without being married. So obviously we have more of it. When you, uh, when you popularize abortion and turn it into something that women boast about, yeah, they do, not everyone. Many women who have had abortions feel awful about it. And I've spoken with many of them. I've counseled many of them. But, uh, but it's also possible to find that, um, that their T-shirts, you remember there was a period they were the, the Planned Parenthood people were popularizing a T-shirt. I've had an abortion and I'm proud of it. I mean, that's a statement. And you can't think that it doesn't have an effect, particularly on the suggestible. Uh, the removal of the death penalty in so many states and for a period nationwide. What does that say? That's not a sanctity of life statement. That's the opposite. That's saying we don't care. What's the death penalty about, right? It's, it's not meant to rehabilitate the offender, obviously. Death penalty is meant to send a statement to society that we consider murder so abhorrent that the perpetrator has renounced his right to life. End of story. And at that point, as long as that's a reality, in the minds particularly of suggestible young males, there is an awareness, right? Murder is out of the question. But when sanctimonious leftists eliminate the death penalty... 
they're sending a message, and that message has an impact on the hearts and the minds of the souls of many, if not all, of the people in our society. So add to that the violence in entertainment, and uh, all of these factors reduce our abhorrence of killing in certain types of people. Please don't think this is insignificant. Right? There's, there's no one thing. Uh, those people who uh, jump on gun control, oh, that's what we need to do to end this, um, are there either people in the grip of their grief? And if they're not, they are foolish people. And if they're not in the grip of grief and they're not foolish, then they are wicked people with an agenda. But normal, thoughtful people cannot possibly think that the only issue we've got to deal with is gun control and that'll end. No, I've developed, as I've told you, I've, I'm talking about five specific areas that have to do with that and other similar tragedies. And number four is a very important one, which is that, uh, that our abhorrence at murder has been effectively and deliberately diminished by left-wing policies that have been inflicted on the country since the early 1960s. The sanctity of life has been dramatically reduced as a unifying cultural meme in America. And that brings us finally to number five. Um, it is important not to emotionally overreact. And this is true not in just in this sad instance, but in every instance. There are times where uh, somebody at work does something really, really aggravating and it makes you mad. Please remember that that's a very bad time to make a decision or a proclamation or an outburst. Just don't do anything. When you are overcome emotionally, either with grief or with anger, don't make decisions. It's a really bad time. Now is really not a time to react to the Florida shootings. We all feel the grief, obviously not as much as the people who suffered, but we feel it. It's important not to overreact and to look at this dispassionately and unemotionally. Public policy decisions made emotionally are invariably very bad. Uh, the Dodd-Frank laws, many other laws that were brought about in the wake of financial uh, problems in the country, bad, bad laws. It's just a bad thing to make a law whilst in the grip of emotions. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, look, let's stipulate, obviously, that the shooting was absolutely horrific, right? Words, words can't uh, describe it adequately. But the changes that we really want to impose on American society have to be thought about. What those changes would do to help must be thought about. What do I mean? Well, you all know that we lose well over 30,000 people every single year in car wrecks, car accidents. Over 30,000 people every year die in car accidents. That means, as I calculated, well over 600 people dying every week, right? It's true. It's nearly 100 people a day die on Americans' roads. Uh, 
So 17 people die. Wait, now, by the way, uh, understand me carefully, right? I'm not saying that a death in a car accident is the same as a, a death of a child in a school shooting, right? I understand the differences, but I want you to understand the similarities. We're talking public policy, and we're talking about the safety of American citizens. That they are children makes it worse. That they were in a school makes it worse. The emotional impact. We all put ourselves in the position of parents or teachers at the school, and we feel the horror and the grief. All true. But there is also an analysis that can and should be made on an unemotional intellectual level. We've got to make sure that this never happens again and that nobody else shoots up anyone in a school. I agree. It would be fantastic. But then don't we also want to make sure that although 17 people died in Florida, at the moment I'm speaking these words, close to 1,000 people have died on America's roads. 17 in Florida nearly a thousand and all of them died violently all of them didn't want to die all of them started that morning thinking there was just going to be another day 17 died in florida about a thousand have died on the roads stop the carnage how can we tolerate this nearly a hundred americans being violently having their lives snuffed out on the roads of America, this is carnage. Are we crazy? Are we mad? We got to stop it. How do we stop it? It's easy. All you have to do is reduce the national speed limit to 20 miles an hour. Absolutely. Now, people, oh, you can't do that. Well, gun control, they say you can do things. You can make, make incredibly um, powerful, wide-sweeping things. Okay, if you can, you can. You, you force the speed limit to 20 miles an hour, and that would all but eliminate road deaths in the United States of America. Why haven't we done so? Simple. We are willing to accept a certain number of deaths in exchange for the freedom to drive at a higher speed. I don't know another way of putting it. I've just spoken a truth. It's unpalatable. It's unpleasant, it's unwelcome, I'm sure, but it is a truth. We make a compromise, and we speak to individuals, and we say, please drive safely. We speak to our family members, drive safely. We speak to the people in our community, drive slower on these dangerous streets. But all of that isn't changing anything. The fact is that in a population of over 300 million people, over 30,000 die on the roads every year. Okay, do you want to eliminate it? National speed limit of 20 miles an hour. It's as simple as that. But it isn't, you see, because the truth is that we're not willing to forego certain freedoms, even if on a national level, on a statistical level, over 30,000 people will die on the streets. I'm not saying we should tolerate shootings in schools, not saying that at all. But I am saying that we always make certain decisions on a large-scale statistical level. And we say, we balance, wipe out the carnage on the roads versus the right to drive at a certain speed. Wipe out all shooting deaths in America 
versus the right for people to own weapons. You've, you've got to weigh it up. It's not that simple, particularly if it's a lot less effective. Re- making a national speed limit of 20 miles an hour would be totally effective, totally. But uh, removing guns, afraid not so effective. And so these things do need to be thought out intellectually, not emotionally. Before we make laws, we need things to be weighed up dispassionately, unemotionally, and intellectually. And uh, sad as it is, that is how I look at the Florida shootings. I feel with the parents, I feel grief at the idea of young lives being wiped out in an instant like that. And I think that the individual involved should be put to death. If you're not going to take the previous step, and I think it's a bit late for that because having done this, I do think he needs to be executed. Not he, he doesn't need it, but society needs for him to be executed. Uh, Will that happen? I'm not sure. I don't know. But uh, it should be. The death penalty should be applied swiftly and certainly in the cases of undoubted murder. No question about it. That would be one of the steps. Uh, the The restoration of recourse for people who are mentally ill to be off the streets, but not necessarily in the criminal justice system, that needs to be reinstated. There's a lot of national work, a lot of stuff for us to do in order to make sure that we diminish these. We do ourselves a disservice, we do society a disservice, and we do honesty and truth a disservice by jumping on the ban the guns bandwagon. That's going to do it. No, it actually won't. So um, that, ladies and gentlemen, is as far as we can go today. The website, as always, is rabbidaniellappin.com. I urge you to visit it because I want to be able to stay in touch with you. I want us to be connected. Uh, You know, you never know what lies ahead and uh, what opportunities and possibilities, what perils and, uh, and what dangers lie ahead. I want to be able to reach you. And one of the ways we do that is with our mailings. Uh, You can um, arrange to put in your email for one a week, two a week, or three a week. We put out thought tools. We put out Susan's musings, which is the most popular. And we put out Ask the Rabbi, which is our response each week to another question that we find most interesting of the questions that were submitted to us that week. And so uh, also uh, take a look at a powerful audio training program uh, called Boost Your Income. You can download it and listen to it immediately uh, at a very special price, a very, very low price, between 5 and $6, I think, uh, on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. So scoot over there, don't hesitate, and uh, stay in touch because I am your rabbi. And the only way I can continue to reveal how the world really works is if I can, in fact, reach you uh, by not only this show, but also some of the other ways we have for delving more deeply into some of the timeless truths and permanent principles of ancient Jewish wisdom. So until we're together next week, my friends, I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. This is your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.